something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. A warning for our listeners, this episode contains discussion of child sexual assault and of suicide. Please listen with caution and care. In February of 1994, a six-year-old girl living in New Orleans complained of pain in her abdomen and pelvic region. When she was examined at the hospital, the doctor suspected she had been sexually assaulted, and the police were alerted. The child was questioned by doctors and by the police without a parent present. According to the doctor, when he asked who had harmed her, the child named Patrick Brown, her mother's live-in boyfriend. Patrick insisted that he was innocent. He would never hurt a child, let alone someone in his own family. Without any corroborating evidence, the prosecution relied solely on the notes taken by the doctor. And after just a day and a half of trial, the doctor's word was enough to convince the jury to convict. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm Tiffany Reese, host of the podcast Something Was Wrong, sitting in for Jason Flom. I am a documentarian, survivor, and advocate. And on my audio docuseries podcast, I work with survivors of abuse and crime. Today's case tragically impacted the lives of two people, someone who was wrongfully convicted of a heinous crime and the victim of that crime who tried for decades to tell the truth, that the wrong person was in prison and was not heard. Thankfully, there are two survivors in this story, and one of them is with us today, Patrick Brown. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and being willing to share your story and your experience with us today. I'd like to start by just saying how sorry I am for what you've experienced. It was incredibly heartbreaking coming across your story and the story of the survivor. 
It was clear to me that you're both victims and survivors of so much systemic and legal abuse within this story. And I think it's really brave that you're willing to share with us after everything that you've already experienced and overcome to be here today. So thank you so, so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, thank you so much to your attorney, Kelly Oriens, who's also joining us today. Kelly, could you introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background before we jump into Patrick's story? Sure, sure. Thank you um, so much for having both of us um, here today. Uh, so I am the director of the Decarceration and Community Reentry Clinic uh, at the University of Virginia School of Law. That is a mouthful <laughs> in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, Patrick, I'd love to go back a bit. Um, and and talk a bit about you and where you were born and a little bit about your background and who you were leading up to this horrific experience. I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, raised in the lower nine. I come from a good family, real beautiful family. Family was full of love, so it wasn't broken at all. You know, to where my family, they open arms to whoever, welcome in, feed them, help them out, to where I wasn't a bad person. But I took a turn in my life as I was growing up as to become street. Hung out all night, hung with the fellas, doing this, doing that. To the point to where when I met my kid mama, my soldier, you know, everybody got to have a soldier. How did you meet Kathy? What was your relationship like? Oh, man. I met Kathy. You know, I was just coming out the club, and she was walking up, and she was crying. So I was stopping. I say, you know, show my concern because she's a nice looking woman. And when I talked to her, we had hooked up, and you know, we dated, have a buku fun, and you know, moved in with her like two weeks in the relationship, something like that. And from there to where it was, it was a beautiful relationship. She had my daughter. And the whole time she was pregnant, I was just so protective of her. Don't want nobody to smoke around her. Don't want nobody doing that. And I always pop up at the house, see her, rub her stomach, leave, back in the streets, then come back home. It was just like, like a normal routine for me. And she was all the way 100 with me. But when I was 100 with her, I had to say somewhat I was and somewhat I wasn't. Because I stood in the streets all night, hustling, trying to provide for my family by the streets. And really, I didn't have time for my family at home. Do you, do you think like you did the best you could in the situation you were in at the time? I mean, you're, you were only 20 years old, right? Right. I'm 19. Yeah. I think that. It's tough when you want to be able to provide for your family and you feel like you have limited options, I think, sometimes on how to do that. Right. Well, um, you know, I didn't really had no guidance on how to raise a family, how to keep up with the bills and make sure that the family had Medicare and all that. I didn't know about all that. You know, ain't nobody really hold my hand and show me how to become a man to provide for family like the man supposed to do. Because when I was real young, my dad had died. I really ain't had no father figure in my life. I just went, went on my own, tried to learn from the streets. Did you have any previous run-ins with the law? You mentioned, you know, 
the lifestyle, but did you have any, like, did they know who you were? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the system, the system, they did know who I was because during the time of my arrest and during the time of my trial, they really gave me a figure of how many times that I had been arrested. And the 37 times that I've been arrested was fighting, aggravated battery, disturbing the peace, stuff like that. It wasn't no, really no major crime. It was like mostly misdemeanor charges. Yes, and nothing involving violence against children, to be clear. No, no, nothing involving that. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, We're going to talk about the events that led to your wrongful conviction now. I'd like to remind the listeners that we'll be discussing some triggering topics involving a minor child. To protect the privacy of the victim, we are not using her real name. Instead, we'll call her Sarah. Kelly, would you mind walking us through what we know of the case? All right. So first, I think it's important to make clear that this is a case where someone was was. Uh, horrifically victimized and survived a, a, an awful, awful assault, and uh, then was re-victimized for 20 years after, while she tried to tell the people around her, including the district attorney's office, that the wrong person was in prison. I think it's important to acknowledge the two ways that the that the victim in this case was, and the survivor in this case, was was harmed. So the case starts in February of 1994 uh, when Sarah was six years old. Uh, It was the day after Mardi Gras when she started complaining about discomfort in her abdomen and her pelvic uh, region. So they attempted some home remedies and over-the-counter treatment, um, but that didn't work. And so then she was taken in to see Dr. Ronald Wilcox. Dr. Wilcox immediately suspected that she had been raped and asked Dr. Maria Mena, a pediatric specialist in child sex abuse, to evaluate Sarah. And so they start talking to Sarah about what happened to her. What's really critical to understand about what happens next is what is actually said in the doctor's office versus what then gets put onto paper and given to the police, and given then to the district attorney's office. And what the difference is, is you have in the doctor's office a lot of what we would call, you know, leading questions, um, because you're dealing with a six-year-old girl. At the time, it was recorded in the doctor's notes that she said, quote, Patrick put his penis in me down there. Sarah maintains that is not what she said and that at the hospital, she was only asked, who is Patrick, to which she responded, essentially, that he was her family member. When NOPD detectives were called in, Sarah was also questioned without a family member present. Thank you, Kelly. So now, Patrick, could you tell us about what your experience was when you arrived at the hospital that day with Sarah's mother? Me and Kathy arrived at the hospital together. And when I got there, I passed through the room, the examination room, and I seen family members in the room with Sarah to the point to where when the detectives came out of another room and brought me into it and was questioning me about it. And basically, it was questioning me about, you know, something that happened to the victim. And they was asking me a question about, do I know anything about it? No, I don't know. That's why I'm here at the hospital trying to find out what is the problem. 
at this at this time, Mr. Brown is completely cooperative with the police and wants to know who hurt this little girl that he loves and and takes care of. And so he um, is not at all thinking like a suspect. Um, he submits to various testing. He waived his rights to an attorney and his right to remain silent and spoke to detectives without an attorney, where he denied allegations that he had raped Sarah. I went out to the police station with him and was in a room and very cooperative with him, asking a lot of questions. To the part to where they asked me, did I actually do the crime? And the only thing I could just tell her this, ma'am, I don't know nothing about it. The more I know about it is what y'all telling me right now, and I don't know nothing about the incident or none of that. However, um, based on the statements that Sarah made, or rather was alleged to have made uh, to doctors that day, Mr. Brown was arrested on the charge of aggravated rape. It was something unspeakable, you know, it's really unspeakable to well get charged for something that you didn't do that they actually put this charge on me. But some kind of way that everything pointed at me for some reason, I don't know why, because maybe I probably do know why, because the way I was, the type of person I was, and that side of the family didn't really want me to be with their daughter. But like I said, she was my soldier, she was my everything. You know, I would protect her. I would lose my life to give her and the kids. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So I never talked to nobody while I was in jail about it, but I was going back and forth to court with it and doing a pretrial investigation and all that is really, really kind of hurtful because it was like, this is really actually happened. You know, you take a visa trial behind something I did not do. And where is the evidence? Because I ain't seen the evidence at all. Because I know they're supposed to do a rape kit and all that, and they ain't did no rape kit. They ain't did no drawing of blood. They ain't did nothing to take down evidence, DNA, and none of that. After he was arrested, he was given a $250,000 bond. His family could not afford the roughly $30,000 that it would have cost him to pay a bail bondsman. So Mr. Brown spent more than nine months in jail waiting to go to trial. His family also could not afford an attorney, so Robert Jenkins, an attorney from the Orleans Parish Indigent Defender Panel, was appointed to represent Mr. Brown. Can you give us a rundown of the details of the trial, uh, December 13th, 1994? Who was the judge, the name of the prosecutor? Absolutely. So Mr. Brown went to trial in Section A of Orleans Parish Criminal District Court in front of Judge Morris Reed. The prosecutor on the case was David Wolf. And the district attorney at the time was the notorious Harry Connick Sr., who headed up the Orleans Parish DA's office from 1973 to 2003. Jason's covered some of the many wrongful convictions that occurred under Connick's watch on this podcast. His office was known for withholding and suppressing evidence. In fact, the Innocence Project of New Orleans estimates that during his tenure, Favorable evidence was withheld in the trials of one in four men sent to death row. The trial started that evening with opening statements, and it concluded the next day. Uh, We don't actually know the full extent of what happened during the trial, because as Mr. Brown learned over the nearly 30 years that he fought his conviction, since his direct appeal, no trials transcript has actually been made available. When the case was reopened by the district attorney's office in 2023, we still could not find a transcript despite many, many, many efforts. Um, However, what we do know is that the whole trial lasted about a day and a half from the time of jury selection to the time a verdict was delivered, which, when you think about it, is deeply concerning considering the mandatory sentence for aggravated rape at the time and still today is life without the possibility of parole. Kelly, who who testified in the trial and whose behalf did they testify on? Zara was twice brought into the court to testify and twice her nose started to bleed as soon as she took the stand and questions began which was something that was really common for her at the time whenever she was in a very stressful situation. 
And so she was dismissed. Um, No accommodations were made for her to testify in private. And instead, the state called Dr. Wilcox to testify in her place. And recall, Dr. Wilcox was the first physician to examine her. The child being questioned in front of the whole court instead of the judge's chambers, like, what is your opinion on that? I mean, it's obviously so traumatic and stressful to the child that they're having this physical reaction after being raped. It just seems um, that the victim wasn't being thought of. I completely agree. I, I think, you know, cases like this are are really tough because we we keep courtrooms public for really important reasons to make sure that crucial decisions in our justice system that carry serious consequences that that compromise people's liberty interests do not happen in private. And when witnesses testify, juries are empowered to make a decision about that witness's credibility. So I, so to answer your question, I think there's a tension because we want to make sure that people are safe. We want to make sure that tr- children who have been harmed are not re-traumatized. But we also have to ensure that the Constitution is followed and that liberty interests are not compromised in private. That being said, I do believe that accommodations could have been made to make Sarah more comfortable and less stressed. And what w- that is crucial here, because as we know, as Sarah has told us in the decades since this happened, she did not say what Dr. Wilcox alleged that she said. And so had she had the opportunity to testify, she would have been able to say the truth she would have been able to testify that she did not accuse Patrick of rape. And that was a very crucial fact for the jury to have. Instead, adults testified for her. And instead, what did the jury hear from Dr. Wilcox? Dr. Wilcox testified uh, to what was in what was recorded in his notes that Sarah had told him that Patrick uh, put his penis in me down there. Um, a statement that we now know and knew at the time um, had the police disclosed it, that, that that was not was what was actually said in the doctor's office. So they were able to introduce the doctor's report with no scrutiny with this statement that never got to be cross-examined. So what happened then is she never got a chance to tell her story. So um, the jury convicts Mr. Brown of aggravated rape. In Louisiana, age of the victim is an aggravating factor. And she was uh, six years old at the time that she was raped. So he was sentenced to mandatory life without the possibility of parole and, um, and was sent to the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The hardest part of being incarcerated is that you lose a family member while you're in there. And I lost several family members. My mom, she went to three open heart surgeries while I was incarcerated. And some people that really loved me, like my grandmother, my aunt, my cousins, they passed away while I was incarcerated. And that's the harder part to where they didn't want to let you go out to go to any funerals or none of that. And with the type of charge that they placed me on, you know, kind of restrict me from everything to where at a certain age, I had to see my daughter once she get older. And any one of my family members, they can't come in as no child. You know, certain things I couldn't do, I couldn't go around certain people, certain jobs I can't have because of the charge. I'm incredibly sorry that you experienced that. Um, That must have been so hard to be stigmatized like that and for something you did not do. From the time of my incarceration, you know, I had to try to make it 
work for me. I had to do the time, stand at the time, do me. So at the time I was in there, you know, I educated myself. I become a better person. I become a mentor. And I'm becoming helping a lot of people out there at, at Angola, even down to some of the offenders, security staff. To where I got to know them and they got to know me and they see that I'm not a really a bad person. You know, from that part, from being Angola, being accepting criticism from a lot of dudes that's around now, really, nothing really can't hurt me no more because I'm all cried out from that. And anything that's not positive, I just don't want to be around it. But during my course of that, you know, they had dudes there. And they were going through a lot of things that they need mentor, they need talk to. And basically, that's what I did. At one point in time in my life, I did lose hope. I did lose hope to where I wouldn't come home. I wasn't going to be with my family again. And I allowed it in my mind to not be a commodity to the system, to where you just holding me there and collecting money off of me. And I'm doing this and doing that to keep the prison function to where they ain't had no more hope. Because, you know, in Angola, inside the prison, contraband comes and goes in there. And the most deadly contraband that they had in there was that fentanyl. And that fentanyl into the prison to where I did want to take that just to end this life because I didn't want that type of life inside of a system behind something I did not do. And then, you know, when I got there, do say life means lock in forever. Man, I ain't no going home. The next place I will be was at Point Lookout, and that's the penitentiary cemetery. That's where I was going to be. And I was still going to be incarcerated. What kept you going, Patrick? What gave you hope? My family kept coming and visiting me. Talked to my daughter every day on the phone. My daughter was a month and eight days old when I got arrested. From that time, as she was just a baby, she don't know nothing about the charges. She fought for me, too. She fought to keep me alive, keep hope going. She wanted her daddy. That kept me going. That was my heart. She kept me going. She kept me fighting. Kept me fighting just to be with her. So she could have a father in her life. So if you could, Kelly, speak to, uh, if you recall, when you first heard about Mr. Brown's case, what stood out to you like as a human and what drew you to essentially work on the case and kind of like how your relationship started those early days? So I got a call on March 24th of 2023 from the district attorney's office, Jason Williams' office. It was specifically from Assistant District Attorney Emily Ma, who is the head of the Civil Rights Division in the office. And I was asked if I was available to come in immediately. And I was told that a young woman had just come into their office and had essentially said that the the wrong person was in prison for raping her. Um, that's a pretty extraordinary call to get. You don't often say no when a district attorney's office calls you as a defense attorney and says, we think we have someone in prison who shouldn't be there. I didn't need much more information than that. Yeah. Wow. So what did they tell you when you got to their office? On that day, what we knew is that in 2002, 
when Sarah was 14 years old was when she first attempted to get the district attorney's office to listen to her about the fact that the wrong man was in prison for raping her. She explained that she estimated that she had written at least 100 letters to the district attorney's office. And the DA at that time was still Harry Connick Sr. In 2015, she submitted an affidavit to the district attorney's office, at this time led by Leon Canizero, declaring that Mr. Brown was not the person who raped her and identifying by name the man who did. She remembers going to the DA's office at least four times, but it wasn't until the fourth time on March 24th, 2023, that someone in that office actually decided to listen to her. And that was, of course, after Leon Conazaro had been succeeded as district attorney by Jason Williams, who was elected in 2020. And they immediately began reinvestigating her case. And I think what was most important to the investigators and to myself was Sarah's incredible credibility, her ability to recall in detail the efforts that she had made over more than two decades to undo this injustice and for the truth uh, to be accepted by the DA's office. And part of what also bolstered her credibility was how deeply deeply harmed she was by having this truth ignored. What drew me to this story or this, you know, hearing about Mr. Brown's experiences and Sarah's experiences that it's really highlights how important it is to listen to survivors and for their voices to be heard. And, you know, on the other side of that, the detriment that can happen to us when we're not heard. Two and a half perpetrators out of 100 that rape actually end up in prison. That's the current statistics. And I mean, working with survivors every day, I know that like the trust just isn't there, that the effort will be meaningful and it won't just do more harm. And I think that's a really sad reality and a place to be, but it's one that we need to sit with because it's so important that we address it, because it's absolutely not okay. Mm, It's absolutely not okay. And it's just a very heartbreaking, very heartbreaking example of the many cracks within the system. Um, Kelly, what was the post-conviction process like that led you from taking this case on to ultimately Mr. Brown's release? One thing that I think is very important, and I want to throw it in there, is that Mr. Brown litigated his case himself for two decades. In fact, the petition that was granted on May 8th was actually the one that Mr. Brown filed himself pro se over a year before this hearing. In it, he argued factual innocence under a very new law in Louisiana that allows you to plead factual innocence. So the DA's office actually filed their response to Mr. Brown's pro se petition. And before they did this, they reviewed all of the available records, they re-interviewed witnesses, consulted with law enforcement, and spent a considerable amount of time listening to Sarah and assessing her credibility as well as verifying the, the details in the story that she told them. After reviewing all available records, they found clear and convincing evidence that Mr. Brown was factually innocent. 
And based on their filing, their response to Mr. Brown's pro se petition, they found a few things most compelling. Those were the fact that Sarah stated unequivocally and on multiple occasions that Mr. Brown was not the man who raped her. Also, that in 2015, she submitted a sworn affidavit to the DA's office in it stating that Mr. Brown was not the person who raped her and naming the person that did. They also considered testimony and statements from the time the case was pretrial that indicated that during a fight with the victim's mother, a man gloated about raping Sarah and about the fact that Mr. Brown was doing time for the crime. That sounds like it would have been a pretty major incident for the defense to explore, but somehow the jury never heard about it. Can you tell us more about that exchange and why it was not brought up at trial? So this fight occurred well before the trial, near the time that Mr. Brown was indicted on the charge of aggravated rape. The prosecution was aware of this fight. It is not entirely clear how accurately that evidence was provided to the defense. Uh, We know definitively that the fact that there were witnesses to this fight and witnesses to this admission, that was not disclosed to the defense. And what was said during the fight that was significant? He stated, you know, that your daughter has got raped and I ain't going to be the one going to do the time for it. And um, I believe he also said, you know, that, that Mr. Brown is doing time for somebody else's crime. And it's just, it's almost irrefutable, right? Like that's a very relevant fact for a jury to hear and understand. This is the same man that Sarah stated raped her in the affidavit that she gave to the DA's office in 2015. They submitted this information to the court and on May 8th, an evidentiary hearing was held And so when Sarah took the stand to testify, she was able to look at Mr. Brown, who was sitting at the table next to me, and um, she she told the court about her 20-year effort to be able to sit where she was that day and tell the truth of what happened to her. At the end of that hearing, Judge Calvin Johnson delivered his ruling, and before he did, he addressed Sarah and Mr. Brown directly. And I'll I'll never forget um, what he said, and I want to repeat it verbatim. He said, the state was complicit in the harm and horror that Sarah endured. Um, He then vacated Mr. Brown's conviction and granted Mr. Brown a new trial. And um, Emily Ma, the chief of the Civil Rights Division, immediately revised the Bill of Information that was filed against him in 1994 and immediately dismissed the charges. That day, he was able to hug Sarah, he was able to hug his family, and he was able to walk out of the front steps and not have to go back to Angola. Patrick, I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be in that courtroom with Sarah and to hear her testimony. Um, And for both of you, after almost 30 years, to finally be heard. Uh, Oh, it was... Unbelievable. It was, it was beautiful. I know that this person came out and being hurt. You know, it kind of helped heal, heal me. It healed me a whole lot. To where once she gave her testimony, she finished giving her testimony, she came up and she hugged me. And once she hugged me in that courtroom, I felt her pain. She felt mine. She told me that she was sorry. That I have to go through it. 
I told her that I was sorry to, but I wasn't deaf for her. I got supposed to. She said that she loved me. Told her that I love her back. Shh. Say, say you never go back, Dad. I know you never go back. I told him that I'll never leave him again. The only way that I leave him is God take me from this place. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Um, thank you so, so much for your time and your willingness. It is incredibly brave to be this vulnerable in such a public way. And I just want to hold space and acknowledge that what you did today is an incredibly big thing. And I wish you and your family all of the best in the future. And yeah, thank you so, so much. We also want to let our listeners know that there's a GoFundMe page to help you get back on your feet. So listeners, if you want to show your support for Patrick as he starts this new chapter in his life, please look for Patrick Brown on GoFundMe.com or go to the link in our episode bio. Now, this is the part of the show that we call Closing Arguments. We'd like to hear your final thoughts, anything at all that you want to share with listeners or that you hope listeners will take away from hearing this story. Kelly, can we hear your closing arguments first and then we'll hear from Patrick? This is the first exoneration that I have ever been involved in. And I I am horrified by what I've learned through this process. I also think it's really important to remember that what happened to Mr. Brown is a symptom of a diseased system that puts not only people who are factually innocent in prison, but puts people in prison who should not be there in the first place. People who have caused harm, but who also have a larger story, who who have a story that is often rarely ever heard, um, usually until decades later. And so I hope that Mr. Brown's story will inspire us not just to look at the cases of people who are factually innocent, but the cases of all people who are in prison to question and continue questioning, is prison really an answer and an effective answer to the harm that's occurring in our community? It has been, in my experience, a 150-year experiment that has failed. It has not served people that have been harmed. It has not brought justice to victims and survivors. I know that we can do better. I believe that we can do better. And I hope that all of us will be inspired to take a second look at this system that we have become so dependent on and taken for granted and challenge ourselves to radically reimagine what justice and safety and health look like in our communities and try to do so much better than we have done. To all the listeners, Adele, be mindful what you do because it just ain't gonna hurt that person, it hurt other people. Be truthful to yourself and others to the point to where we need to stop all the nonsense and be straightforward with ourselves. Let's not put no innocent person in jail. Let's stop the violence. Let's just stop all that because 
Because I ain't worth it. We all just come together no matter how we love, no color, race. Get along. It's time for us people to get along and enjoy life. Enjoy this beautiful world that God gave us. Because if we don't have nothing, you know, who else can we get depend on? We basically depend on the people that surround us. You know, we don't know nobody until we open our mouth and start communicating. Once we start communicating, we start learning people, and we have a better world. And I really appreciate y'all listening. And have a good heart. Open your heart to life itself. For listening. And let's hope y'all have a good heart. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. I'd like to thank executive producers Jason Flom, Jeff Kempler, and Kevin Wardis for inviting me to sit in today. And thanks to our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Kathleen Fink. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can follow me, Tiffany Reese, at LookyBoo, and listen to my podcast, Something Was Wrong, wherever you get your podcasts. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.